Public Radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. From the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, widening Route 17, Catskill Mountain Keeper and several local, state, and national groups are calling on Governor Kathy Hochul to end her administration's plan to add additional lanes along 50 miles of New York Route 17 in Sullivan and Orange Counties. We chat with Ramsey Adams, Executive Director of Catskill Mountain Keeper, about why he thinks it's bad for traffic and for the environment. The earthquake in Turkey and Syria is devastating with tens of thousands dead. We hear from a glacial geologist about how even the eastern United States has all sorts of buried faults that cause regular seismic activity. Plus, one billion rising, the plague that's happening on Valentine's Day, and sub-zero heroes helping to end Alzheimer's. But first, the news from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. In Turkey, rescuers are reported to have pulled five members of a family alive from the rubble of their home. Nearly 130 hours after Monday's earthquake rocked the border region of Turkey and Syria. Turkey's vice president says 67 survivors were found Friday. But a short time ago, officials said the death toll has climbed past 25,000. NPR's Jason Bobian is in Maresh. Four days after this earthquake hit, this has basically become an effort to recover bodies. People here are telling us that an unknown number of people still remain amidst these mountains of rubble that are here in the center of Maresh. People are standing by with body bags. There are body bags filled with bodies on the side of the road. President Biden is again warning that not raising the nation's debt ceiling will result in severe consequences for American families. And Pierce Windsor Johnston reports lawmakers have been going back and forth for weeks with no sign of a breakthrough. President Biden says lawmakers can be fiscally responsible without threatening the nation's economy or reputation. Speaking at the White House, Biden also warned Republicans against holding the debt hostage in exchange for cuts to government spending. We've never reneged on our debt. Our credit has been good for well over 200 years, not one single time. But remember, this debt we're talking about has accumulated over 200 years. It's not, it, didn't, it didn't occur in the last little bit. Now, granted, it went up by a quarter four years ago. The White House notes that there have been numerous clean debt ceiling hikes in recent years, including three during the Trump administration. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. Military units in Alaska are involved in the recovery of an unknown object that President Biden ordered shot down yesterday. It came down in frozen waters off the state's north slope. Its nature remains unclear. But the White House says President Biden gave the order to shoot it down because it was flying at 40,000 feet, posing a safety threat to civilian aircraft. A protest in Britain against a hotel used to house asylum seekers is underlining growing tensions over rising migration numbers. Willem Marx is in London. He reports the incident turned violent and led to several arrests. In recent months, tens of thousands of asylum seekers have arrived by boat from France. The UK government's paying hundreds of hotels to provide temporary accommodation for them, but some people are opposed to housing the migrants in their communities. The protest started peacefully but grew in size, police said, as counter-protesters supporting the migrants also arrived. After the crowd grew violent, police arrested three men, with some protesters attacking officers with projectiles and setting a police van on fire. 
Police leaders call the behaviour, quote, mindless, unacceptable and disgraceful. For NPR News, I'm Bill Marks in London. And this is NPR News. Canada's largest city is set to get a new leader. Toronto Mayor John Tory is stepping down after acknowledging an affair with a former staffer. Tory announced his resignation last night after the Toronto Star newspaper reported on the affair. Tory was first elected mayor in 2014, and he recently won a third term. Now he says he is stepping down to rebuild the trust of his family. Philadelphia is preparing to face Kansas City in the Super Bowl tomorrow, and the city is awash in the Eagles' fight song. From member station WHYY, Peter Crimmins reports that Fly, Eagles, Fly can be heard everywhere, including at the Philadelphia Orchestra. Eagles fans sing their team's fight song in airport security lines, in jury duty waiting rooms, even at weddings. The music director of the Philadelphia Orchestra, Yannick Nazay-Sagan, leads students from the High School of Creative and Performing Arts through the song. I want this to be the best fight song ever recorded. Everybody does it, we do it better. Again, has some advice for the aspiring musicians. Our job is also to throw our emotions to the audience. Of course, if we don't enjoy what we do, there's no chance they will. The Eagles take on the Kansas City Chiefs in Arizona this Sunday. For NPR News, I'm Peter Crimmins in Philadelphia. The Eagles will try to win their second Super Bowl in six years. Kansas City is back in the game for the third time in four years. The Chiefs won the Super Bowl in 2020 but lost to Tampa Bay the following year. I'm Giles Snyder. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. In 1998, then New York Governor George Pataki signed legislation to convert the entirety of New York 17 to an interstate and stated that the conversion would be fully completed by 2009. Well, as we know, that didn't happen, mainly due to a severe lack of funding. Now, though, Governor Kathy Hochul has made up to $1 billion available in the state's capital plan to upgrade the roadway to interstate standards and add a third lane for 50 miles through Sullivan and Orange County. This week, Catskill Mountain Keeper, along with local, state, and national groups, sent a letter to Governor Hochul opposing the plan to expand Route 17, saying, quote, Transportation officials need to go back to square one and develop a plan that fits the needs of the communities, addresses climate, environmental, and justice concerns, and tackles the real infrastructure needs in the Route 17 corridor, end quote. I spoke with Ramsey Adams, executive director of Catskill Mountain Keeper. So the big picture is that... You know, for the last 30 years, there's been an, a sort of long-standing, you know, plan to expand Route 17 into Interstate 86, um, and really was, you know, I think an effort to combat the decline of the Borscht Belt hotels by making Route 17 a major corridor, interstate corridor. So, um, and to service the, that that industry, um, everything has changed since then, and that plan has still been put forward. So, the the current proposal is to make Route 17 
expand it uh, to six lanes and um, from Harriman Exchange to Liberty. So um, it's basically bringing that whole section up to interstate standards uh, and specifically adding a lane in either direction. So ultimately, in some places, you will have up to eight lanes with exits. Um, and uh, so the you know the, the 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 concerning thing about the proposal is it flies in the face of logic. Um, the, there's no need. There's no there's no traffic congestion um, except for in specific choke points on that corridor, and uh, it will only increase traffic. And that's just you know all the studies say that by doing this we will increase traffic um, and. Uh, pollution, climate pollution. Um, so it's really the plan is from a different era and it's moving forward without being reevaluated. And uh, the, there's a coalition of people in support of this expansion. Um, and my belief is that there's a solution where we use this money to fix Route 17. There is the 17 Forward 86 Coalition, which is uh, the group that is advocating for this expansion from uh, and, and from going from Route 17 to, to Interstate 86. And as you mentioned, in order to qualify as a, a federal interstate, they have to make these upgrades, which are some are happening in pieces at certain interchanges. But this would be like 50 miles of road between Harriman and Liberty, adding that third lane, and that's just to get to that this interstate level, right? Correct. It's a billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, it's not. You know, it's 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 a, over a billion. It's a major investment in infrastructure in New York State, and it's just being fast tracked because it's like air quote shovel ready. Um, you know, it's been a major um, uh, priority for Senator Schumer for a long time, um, and he was able to, you know, get the federal money earmarked. So we're now in the process of, you know, what does this look like? What is this um, for the state? And there's a, you know, they have to go through, you know, numerous comprehensive environmental reviews, which are next. So what we're just asking is for the governor to reevaluate the premise of this proposal and instead to use this money to improve what we have this inter this 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 you know highway that's route 17 deal with the the very problematic uh chokehold areas which include uh, the Harriman interchange uh the curious Joel interchange and uh the Mont- uh, the Middletown interchange all three places that have significant you know design issues based on the the traffic capacities that that we're experiencing so there's there's a lot of work to be done on Route 17 to make it a a a a, a better route, and we that's what we want to do. Before the governor's part, she says has said that this will maximize impact on regional economies, but uh, Mountain Keeper is saying there you know negative impacts. Um, what are those impacts that you foresee in the region? So you know. The, Study after study show that increasing lane capacity increases traffic, um, and it doesn't reduce traffic. So, you know, that's a, the number one important point. So if the argument is, oh, we need to increase the, lane, the numbers of lanes because there's traffic and we need to reduce traffic, 
that's not the case. That's not, we're not going to do that by doing this. We're going to increase traffic. So that's one thing. So then if the argument is that we're trying to increase traffic because we're trying to increase economic development, that's not the kind of economic development that we want, which this, this will drive um, you know, things like McDonald's and Burger King on exits and encourage uh, long-haul drivers to use this road um, uh, as much as possible. You know, so we're going to increase traffic, long-haul traffic, and, and ultimately encourage uh, you know, highway roadside development. Um, which is not the kind of development that we uh, are looking for. And it's not good for the economy uh, of the Main Street revitalization efforts that we've all been working so hard for. So it's not an economic... Um, and the places that, that would, you'd think would want this, you know, that actively say, oh, you know, we need this, uh, Legoland, the Resorts World Casino, um, the, the water park, and Monticello, none of them need this. This doesn't service them. Um, they, there are no traffic issues for any one of those, uh, and there's not going to be traffic issues on the horizon other than on the existing choke points that we've identified earlier. Mm-hmm. And those, it seems as though those interchanges were upgraded as part of the development of those, those places oh, you, you mentioned. Yeah. You know, increased traffic will generate more greenhouse gas pollution. How much do you estimate that that might uh, generate? Well, so that's a really important part because what we're talking about is an opportunity to, and there's an obligation in the Climate Leadership of Protection, CPLCA, CLCPA, uh, uh, to uh, take into consideration the, 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 these issues in these kinds of projects. So, I mean, essentially what we're saying is we're going to hold the state accountable for moving this project forward without following the the laws that have been put into place to deal with exactly these kinds of things. So, you know, that's the that's the 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 point and that's why this coalition our co- the coalition, you know, uh, that we put together uh requesting the governor to reevaluate this proposal is so powerful. It represents uh, you know, a broad spectrum of interests um, who are concerned about uh, the climate implications of a major plan like this. So I don't, you know, it's hard for us to to do the kind of analysis that would, um, you know, represent figures for the increase in, in climate uh, pollution from this expansion, but it's well-established um, that that's what will happen and how much I'm not sure but it's significantly more than we're experiencing now and we should be reducing it not increasing it anyway in the mountain keeper statement about uh, stopping expansion on route 17 it mentions it could generate as much as 2 million tons of greenhouse gas pollution there is an environmental impact study underway i guess in october it was the start of a draft environmental impact statement how long does that process take well, it's really up to the agencies, uh, you know, as directed by the governor in the state. So, um, you know, what we know, uh, you know, there's been no additional notices 
except for uh, the uh, the October 2022 announcement by the the governor that the draft EIS was underway. Right, air quotes there. Um, but before the EIS can, uh, you know, an EIS can be issued. Um, there are a number of preliminary st- steps, scoping being the, 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 the main one, which allows for public comment, um, and that process hasn't, hasn't begun in any way. So she, the governor did uh, not mention Route 17 uh, expansion in her state of the state, and there was nothing specific in uh, the budget about the highway expansion. So we're at the very early stage, and this is really like sort of, you know, landing on the governor's desk. This isn't her, you know, project. This isn't something she's been, you know, thought about or focused on, you know, it's, but it's, it, it, it's, it's moving forward now, um, and she has a, the unique opportunity to, uh, you know, take, take uh, hold of this thing and, and put it in the right direction. That's the, the, that's the opportunity. Mm-hmm. It looks like New York State Department of Transportation expects to publish a final EIS for the project in 2025. Um, have you heard from the governor or anyone in Albany uh, since urging them to consider a different approach? Uh, no, we, we just sent the letter out this week. Um, you know, we ex- they can t- take a little time for them to respond, you know, and uh, um, we've, we're starting to, you know, go out publicly and, 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 you know, the next steps for us will be, you know, more formalizing this coalition and, and, and planning next steps for a campaign um, because, you know, unfortunately, we're going to have to do this work. It's none of us want to do this. It's not what we want to do. But you know, the, uh, at a billion dollars and 50 miles of of expansion of Route 17 to terminate in Liberty for no reason. Another important point, I think, for everyone who's thinking about this is um, the federal Department of, of Transportation does not does not see an ability to make Route 17 an interstate beyond liberty. So it's going to terminate there because it is the sight lines aren't there. If you go up through along the Delaware River through Hancock and all the way up into Binghamton, it's just not it's not a feasible project. So you know, there's a sort of a almost like a public relations um, effort to say, you know, we're making this this, you know, Route 17 will be Interstate 86 one day. But it won't be. They're talking about just taking it to liberty. I wasn't aware of that, and that does seem quite odd. Just having it for fifty miles or so and ends yeah. in liberty, and then yeah. it begs the question: Why? It, and you know, and I think again, I think we're just looking at a thirty-year-old idea, and it hasn't been updated to reflect the world we live in. And, uh, you know, the, the sight lines won't change. I mean, it would cost billions of dollars to, to make in, uh, Route 17 an interstate uh, past liberty. You know, billions and billions. You know, like if you just drive that road, we've all done it lots of times. Mm-hmm. It's not, that's not a road that's going to be easily expanded um, to meet highway, uh, federal highway standards. Right. You mentioned there's a coalition of folks that signed that letter that you sent to the governor. Are there other points that those folks want to get out as well? The real, uh, you know, the reason so many diverse groups, national groups, state groups, regional groups, uh, planning groups signed on to this letter 
is because it, it we are at a you know at a juncture in 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 planning you know across the country but here in New York where you know these kinds of projects need to fit into the design of the future so you know this includes i mean the real opportunity here would be to look at public transportation greening these roads making them you know planning them for the future where we need to reduce greenhouse gases and and and, and alter the kind of transportation options and routes that people are taking so you know that's the exciting thing it's a real opportunity um, to, you know, lead by example like New York State always does, and to take this Route 17 proposal and say, let's take that, let's really look at this, let's get the best minds on this, and let's build a road for the future instead of building a road from the past. We'll stay with you uh, as you go through the government and uh, all the meetings and environmental impact studies that have to happen as well. Um, Thank you so much. We'll keep everybody updated. And, uh, you know, the, the, this is a great time to get involved for people who are concerned about these issues. And this issue in particular, you can reach out to Mountain Keeper. You can reach out to the governor. Um, but this is, uh, this is our road. We're spending our money on it. So mm-hmm. we should get the road that we want. <laughs> We've been talking to Ramsey Adams. He's the executive director of Catskill Mountain Keeper about the local, state, and national groups that oppose the plan to expand Route 17 through Orange and Sullivan and the Catskills. You can find more information about that and more information about Catskill Mountain Keeper's work at CatskillMountainKeeper.org. Ramsey, thanks for taking the time, and uh, we'll follow up with you on this. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you. We'll take a short break and back with more. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Kathy Geary of Radio Catskills Now and Then. The Tiny Desk Contest is back. NPR Music is looking for the next great undiscovered musician. Could it be you? If you're an unsigned musician, enter the contest by sending a video of you playing an original song behind a desk. If you win, you'll play your very own Tiny Desk Concert. Go to WJFFRadio.org for all the official rules. If you hear good music, you're listening to Radio Catskill. Your weekend can't even begin until Clyde Alvin Yates III sets it off Saturday night at 7. At 9, an hour of global sounds from the African diaspora on Afropop. Then at 10, Selector, Starkey, and DJ Chuck spend four hours of funk, hip-hop, roots reggae, club classics, and more live on Old School Sessions. Saturday nights only on Radio Catskill. This group is dangerous. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. As NPR News has been reporting this morning, the death toll from the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria have, has risen to more than 25,000. Hundreds of thousands of people are without homes or food and in desperate need of help. We'll share ways you can help in a moment, but now we're going to pivot to a much, much smaller quake that hit the Buffalo area on Monday. It's believed no deaths or major damage occurred, but it was still the largest recorded earthquake there in decades. Dr. Alexander Stewart is a glacial geologist who teaches at St. Lawrence University. He says the eastern United States has all sorts of ancient buried faults that cause regular seismic activity. In fact, there were about 200 earthquakes from Buffalo to Quebec City over the last year. Stewart tells North Country Public Radio's Kara Chapman that there are that the more frequent earthquakes seen there have to do with the area's geology. 
We are in the western Quebec seismic zone. They're in uh, the southern lakes uh, seismic zone. So we are in geologically different zones. We have a little more complicated geology where they, they sort of have this north-south series of weaknesses in the called the Clarendon Linden fault zone and in Buffalo that reactivate. We in North Country in northern New York, St. Lawrence County, we have this sort of three-way intersection between the St. Lawrence Valley fault zone, which uh, you can imagine parallels and is underneath the St. Lawrence River. But we also have this set of faults coming down out of Ottawa. So we have sort of a, a interface here of three fault zones, which leads to increased probability likelihoods of weaknesses releasing energy. We also have a little bit faster stress release. Remember, there was a big glacier that covered most of North America 15,000 years ago. Well, our neck of the woods is is relaxing a little bit more than the Buffalo region. So we have more faults, a little bit more relaxation, a little bit more energy to be released. So we're looking at maybe three to five times more earthquakes a year. Mm -hmm. Right. And I wanted to ask, you know, what capacity do we have, if if any, for predicting seismic activity? Predicting it, uh, there is the a Shake Alert app. If you live in Washington State, Oregon, or California, USGS has an app. Uh, FEMA will also push out notifications of phones in that neck of the woods because they have damaging earthquakes very often. We're not there, so we don't have that technology. That stuff might give you a few seconds. And uh, if you imagine you're in a high rise in Turkey, that doesn't get you anywhere. It may get you into a door frame, right? It may get you under a table, which is better than nothing. But prediction in a way that's going to save life, limb, and property, uh, we may never get there with lead times and windows of the hours and days that we need to either really get to a safe location or evacuate locations. I, I wanted to touch on what you were talking about with, you know, door frames and under tables, because, you know, you see that in the movies a lot and, and in shows where there's an earthquake and, you know, they rush to a door frame. Like, what are you supposed to do when an earthquake is happening to, you know, get to a safer spot? During the event, when the initial shaking occurs, you'll want to get under some sort of structure that's going to be more stable than um, unreinforced parts of the building to protect yourself from falling debris. Then after the initial shaking, uh, you need to get outside because as we see in Turkey, there's over 10,000 damaged buildings, 5,000 or more confirmed to be collapsed. Uh, they don't all collapse during the initial shaking. They can collapse in the aftershock. So you need to do your best to clear those structures as soon as you're safe to do so. What else do you think people should know about earthquakes? Earthquakes in this neck of the woods um, are not going to have shaking intensities or magnitudes that are great enough uh, to devastate our environment like you might have in Turkey or Southern California. We also don't have the infrastructure. We don't have the population densities. Um, so we're not going to have that level of a disaster. We do have one major engineering marvel uh, the Moses uh, Saunders Power Dam near Messina, which is not to be ignored uh, with shaking intensities and magnitudes that we can expect to get here in that 5.0 range. We're looking at maybe one or two of those a century. We had one in 1944. We're 
probably do in the next tens of years for a similar magnitude earthquake like the one in 1944. The dam was built and completed in 58. They used the knowledge that we had up until 58 based on the seismicity of the area to retrofit and sort of engineer the building to or the, the dam to be structurally stable for certain magnitude earthquakes. But that is a significant economic driver uh, for the region. So that could be damaged in relatively low intensity, shaping low magnitude earthquakes. So we may not have the devastation. Your homes aren't going to collapse and we're not going to have that level of sort of devastation. But we could have major impacts uh, to the Moses Saunders power dam. Uh, is a result of a relatively low magnitude earthquake with respect to these ones we see in California, Alaska, or Turkey. That was St. Lawrence University professor Dr. Alexander Stewart speaking with Kara Chapman and that report courtesy of New York Public Radio. And the earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria on Monday is the deadliest in over a decade. It's prompted an unfathomable humanitarian crisis. If you're looking for ways to help, it's important to research charities before donating. Charity Navigator has compiled a list of nonprofit organizations that are involved in recovery efforts across Turkey and Syria and rated them on their transparency and effectiveness. And those include the International Red Cross, Doctors Without Borders, and the United Nations International Children's Emergency Fund. You can find the complete list at charitynavigator.org. We'll take a short break. This is Radio Chatsko. I have no accurate knowledge of my age or date of birth. Slaves know as little of their ages as horses know of theirs. The nearest estimate I came to was around February 14th. Valentine's Day is coming up. It's also Frederick Douglass's birthday. You can celebrate it with him a couple days early on Sunday stage. Oliver King performs excerpts from the autobiography of Frederick Douglass tomorrow night at 8. Hi, I'm Mimi Bradley, Radio Catskills Development Manager. Did you know that you are our largest and most reliable source of funding? It's true, and there are many ways you can support us. Include Radio Catskill in your will. Make a gift of stock. Set up a charitable annuity or trust. Make an IRA charitable distribution. Make a donation in memory or in honor of a loved one. I can give you all the details. Call me on 845-482-4141 or email mimi at wjffradio.org. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. The SUNY Sullivan Theater Program has announced a new performance of V-Day, One Billion Rising. It's coming up Tuesday, Valentine's Day at 8 at the SUNY Sullivan Selig Theater. One Billion Rising is part of a worldwide annual event empowering women and raising awareness about violence against them. I spoke with Jessica Barkle, SUNY Sullivan's Associate Professor of Theater, who's also directing the performance. This particular event precedes my involvement with the theater here at SUNY Sullivan. They were doing it uh, every year, and it was formerly called The Vagina Monologues, which was a play that was written in 1997, I believe. And then in 1998, they gave the rights to colleges and organizations to produce for free on Valentine's Day. And then they opened it up years later to all of the month of February. And then when I came here, they were doing it and it had changed to more of a community event where you didn't memorize the monologue. Anybody could do it, survivor or otherwise. 
in regards to violence against women and rape. And uh, we've been doing it with the students and the faculty and the staff and the community members every year um, until 2020, obviously. (laughs) And uh, during 2020, everybody sort of had, you know, a moment of pause to reflect. And Eve Ensler, or formerly known as Eve Ensler, who goes by V now, they decided to discontinue the vagina monologues and focus focus more on this this larger idea of V Day, uh, one billion rising, with this idea that pieces, poetry, dance, music from all over the world and from all spectrums of women can be celebrated on this day to raise money for. Uh, organizations or their organization, which is V-Day, you can donate there as well, but um, for organizations that serve the community in regards to um, violence and rape. Um, So we have paired with, for years we were pairing with RISE, but RISE has now been enveloped by Fearless Hudson Valley. So for the past two years, we've been working with Fearless Hudson Valley. Last year, we did sort of a transition where we did the vagina monologues. We have to pay the rights for it now and also added original works to it. And this year, we have fully transitioned to the V-Day event where I sent out um, a notice to the community and said, hey, if you have a piece that you would like to perform, please keep it at five minutes and uh, we will have an event that day on February 14th, and all the money and the proceeds will go to Fearless Hudson Valley. And And we have several people from the community doing that. Yeah, and just so folks who may not know, Fearless Hudson Valley is the leading authority in the area on uh, interpersonal abuse and violence, and they collaborate with others to to help others uh, who will maybe be caught in this cycle of violence. So this is one of the artistic uprisings, is that correct, where you're bringing together women who hold maybe uh, marginalized identities or face oppression in the community to tell their stories through these monologues? Yes or poems or dance or artwork. Um, Last year we had people who played the piano. So um, I think it's just a day where people who are survivors or people who want to raise money all along the spectrum of women um, to just, you know, just have a moment of holding space for that and what, however they want to express that. Uh, So that's also what we're doing this year. I think we have a lot of poetry this year and um, a couple of, uh, an original play by Melissa Bell, um, and which is a 10-minute play, and then uh, an excerpt of Tannis Kowalczyk's One Woman Show Decompositions from Farm Arts Collective. So we have a variety of things going on. And One Billion Rising, this sort of umbrella group that you're mentioning, is the biggest mass action to help end violence against women. It is amazing some of the statistics that they have on their website. One in three women across the planet will be beaten or raped during her lifetime. That's one billion yep. women and girls. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. I'm sure that that is important to you. and That's why you're involved, not only because of the artistic expression, but because of the human accountability we must all face. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a shocking it's a shocking statistic and gets worse when you marginalize it to say people with disabilities or trans women, um, that the numbers are, they're, they're embarrassing. And I, I think for me as a, as a theater artist, predominantly, it's one of those things where if you never examine the negative imagination, it will always be doomed to repeat. And so 
allowing space for people to talk about their survivor story through poems or through, you know, a, a biographical calling to action, I think is important. The numbers are bad and they've been bad, you know, <laughs> and they're apparently worse on February 14th, you know, which is also depressing. Oh, is that, is that, um, is that true? That's that, on that day? On yeah, Valentine's for a long Day, time, that was why. That was why they they found in um, over the years that rape happened more often on February 14th than any other day in the year. So that for years that was why the vagina monologues was held on February 14th. I don't know if those statistics still hold true, but when I used when I was doing it uh, as a young person, the first time I ever did the vagina monologues was in 1998 as a sophomore at Cornish College of the Arts, and then I did it again in Albuquerque a couple years in a row, and then I've done it. I think this will be my eighth time here at SUNY Sullivan performing Vagina Monologues or V-Day in this instance. I think as an, as, a, as a teacher, I'm always surprised how much it affects students of all genders. They're, they're often unaware because a lot of times we don't scratch the surface of these these stories. We don't want to talk about them, but when you are faced with them in person with the performer it always ends up being a discussion in class or in the hallway. I don't know how many times people came up to me when I was performing who I didn't even know who had come and saw the show for extra credit purposes and then were completely moved. So it, um, I think for me, yes, it's important, but mostly it's important because it had it, it, much like the website on V day says it has to stop. You know, it's just it's like, mm-hmm. this has to be, we have to rise up and make, people aware of this and not be afraid of talking about it because it is staggering. It's embarrassing. There's more information and facts about V-Day and One Billion Rising at OneBillionRising.org. You mentioned the impact that it has on students and and yourself. What was some of the feedback you got from the last time that you performed this? Last year, because it was a bit of a hybrid transition, because I felt as a faculty member and as a theater artist, it had had a had a, a history and a ritual here in this county for being this event where a lot of people did it and they expected to have the monologue already written for them and ready to go and they thus got to sort of tell their story through somebody else's story. And for those who aren't aware, it was it's like what we call verbatim theater, uh, theater or docudrama. They Evensler now V went and spoke to women and interviewed them and asked them the same questions and then turned those into monologues. And that's what people would perform over the years. And I thought it was a bit of a heavy lift after not doing it for two years in person to ask people to do an original work um, when they hadn't had that transition. So we had a little bit of both last year. And I had people come up to me um, who had witnessed the, the, the new things um, and saying, wow, um, if this is what this is turning into, then that's amazing. Because it was, it was more true to the people who live here. You know, it was, though there were, there were people people knew, you know, that were up on the stage and, and never knew that that was their story or never knew that that had happened or never knew the, the goings on around it or never knew, you know, how many people this affects, you know, um, <laughs> I think when you're a faculty member and your students come and watch you and then you say, I'm a survivor, you know, and that makes them feel if they themselves are also a survivor, that it is safer to discuss those things and to get help if they need it. 
Um, I think for me, after 2020 and 2021, where we didn't do it, um, it was a huge thing because people have been behind closed doors for so long, and we did find that violence was worse during that time, and I think that that, that needed to happen, and people needed to have that space. And what was the response from some of the artists that you reached out to? I'm, have you got another feedback from them? Um, I think it's going to take some time. You know, anytime something's new, it's a little weird. Some people have been doing it over the years. They're like, well, I don't have anything. They're so used to having the monologue for them already. But I, those, I think a lot of those people will also come and see the show and I think maybe might be inspired. I had some people say, I don't know if this is worth performing, you know, and they would send me their poem. And I said, yeah, you know, I mean, that's what this is for is, you know, you might think that that is your particular perspective and it's common to you, but it's not necessarily common to everybody else. And so hearing people's stories and having a cathartic moment with your audience is what live performance is about and um, being able to have a story as a, as a touchstone for understanding these layered and complicated feelings around rape and violence against women is the only way to heal and the only way to make people stop. Um, I think they have a film of V-Day. There was a documentary that came out, I think, in 20, I want to say 2015, until the violence stopped. Oh, no, wrong, 2003. (laughs) Um, And... One of the things that really rang true to me in that documentary, which I think is important in this discussion, is, again, that sort of negative imagination. And they they were with the Sioux tribe in South Dakota, and um, <clears throat> they were talking about the women there. Were, they, were, they were a little put off by the fact that men weren't allowed to be a part of the, or the, the, the this experience. And that they were, you know, and that had been the way it had been, you know, since 1997. <laughs> And uh, they said, no, because this is historical trauma and they're a part of that trauma. And to help the healing, they have to be a part of this healing. There, there has been harm done to the men and toxic masculinity is a part of this historical trauma where they became less because of reservations. And became, you know, So there's a healing that needs to happen there as well. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and I had worked with some tribes down in New Mexico and that, that, that kind of rang true to me that you can't just heal one gender um, in order to make violence stop. There, there has to be healing on all sides. There isn't necessarily one you know, enemy, you know, there's, there's several, there's, there's, it's taught behavior. And, and I think when people hear each other's stories and the, the layered elements within those stories, that's, that's how we get a fuller picture of it. VDA 2023 marks the 25 years of this global activist movement to end violence against women, cisgender, transgender, gender expansive people, girls. It's still amazing. These facts and figures, what will it take to turn this around and end this violence? I, I, I don't think I, I don't think I am, I'm qualified to even have that answer. But um, as a theater artist, I always do believe that change comes from people seeing themselves and others and um, wanting to make that change because they felt an emotional or universal emotional 
outpouring and and that you know very greek word cathartic which means like to puke essentially that you puke out this feeling in order for it to go away it's not going to go away until it's been discussed until it's felt by a community you know you're bringing that to the community this Tuesday. V-Day, One Billion Rising, performed Tuesday at 8 p.m. at the SUNY Sullivan Selig Theater. And all proceeds for the event go to Fearless Hudson Valley. More information at sunysullivan.edu. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for, for staging this production. Thank you so much. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, Sub-Zero Heroes, Freezen for Good Reason. <laughs> this is Radio Chatskill. Everyday Radio Catskill brings you local news and conversations on air. But did you know we have even more local programming on our Radio Catskill podcasts? Like Cooking in the Catskills with Chef Brett August. Or Close to Home with Leif Johansson. A deep dive into the upstate New York institutions and organizations that keep rural communities running. Radio Catskill podcasts at WJFFradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. A toolkit for dealing with men, if you happen to be dating them. Examine each carefully made truffle. Feed them, one at a time, to the dog. <laughs> Call the hunter's machine. Tell him you don't speak chocolate. This week on Selected Shorts, the rocky road to love is paved by Pam Houston and Lisa Coe. Join me, Meg Wallitzer. Sunday night at 7 on Radio Catskill. Support comes from Jeff Bank, Sullivan County's community bank for over 100 years. Meeting banking needs with a variety of deposit and loan products. Member FDIC and an equal housing lender. National Mortgage Licensing System and Registry Identification Number 405318. Jeff Bank, still banking strong. From Livingston Manor, dining, shopping, and the arts at the gateway to the Catskill Park. LivingstonManorNY.com. And from listeners like you. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Every year, brave sub-zero heroes get cold for the cause, and that cause is Alzheimer's. All proceeds from the sub-zero heroes event, which will be held next Saturday, help the Alzheimer's Association in Hudson Valley, New York chapter, continue to provide free care and support for families impacted by Alzheimer's and all other dementia. I spoke with Meg Boyce, Vice President of Programs and Services, Alzheimer's Association, Hudson Valley Chapter. Every year, there's a lot of special people that are willing to plunge into these icy waters to fight Alzheimer's. Uh, can you tell us how Sub-Zero Heroes started? So Sub-Zero Heroes started 13 years ago. It was actually founded by my husband. Uh, when our develop, yeah, so our <laughs> development director was looking for something new and fun, um, and a new way to raise funds. And so, uh, he, you know, came up with the idea of jumping into a frozen lake. I guess that's always been a dream of his. And so, yeah, we've been doing it ever since. And this is one of your most popular fundraisers, right? It is. I mean, our largest and probably most popular is our walk, but this is, a different fundraiser that really brings in a different crowd, and people really enjoy it. We have a lot of spectators that come and watch, and it really is, it's a fun day. It's a great time. And you've got a lot of individual participants, but then also teams, and then on your website, you have those teams listed and the, fundraise, the funds raised. Uh, it seems like it's a little competitive. 
it is very competitive because we jump in the order of the amount that you brought in. So, and everybody is in costume because it's the Sub-Zero Heroes. So um, teams dress up in costume and sometimes those costumes are a little chilly. Uh, so we always want to be the team that's raised the most money. The, I believe the team that's number one right now is from Sullivan County. Um, and they jump every year, and they raise quite a few funds. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's really a great time. Of course, all the uh, proceeds are going to help with Alzheimer's research. Can you give us an idea of like sort of where we stand with treatments right now? We are really at a very exciting time. Um, in the past two years, we've had two new treatments that were approved by the FDA that are a new group of treatments. So the treatments that we've had available for quite some time uh, really didn't change the progression of the disease. Those medications just kept the symptoms at bay. But now we have a new group of treatments that actually are changing the progression of the disease because it's actually attacking one of the proteins that is the potential cause for Alzheimer's. It's called beta amyloid. And so we have Aduhelm and Lakembi. Um, the tricky thing about these two medications is they are infusion therapies. They are not a pill because what they do is they pass through the blood-brain barrier and they actually get rid of this sticky plaque that has built on the outside of the brain cells. So we have two more, uh, gantanerumab and solanuzumab, that are um, coming down the pipeline that fall within that same group. So it's really a very exciting time for research. It seems as if these new treatments are maybe more promising than the other treatments that are available. Well, it, it definitely opens us up to being able to say that we can now slow the progression. It's not It's not curing people, and it's not, you know, the, the disease will still progress just at a slower rate if we are attacking at least one of the hallmarks of the disease. And what we really feel is it's going to have to be a combination of treatments and therapies, and it will probably have to be very individualized to each person. So a lot of research is being done. We are looking at over 100 different types of approaches and therapies to really help decrease the amount of folks that are impacted by this disease. Are some of these getting closer to being available to folks soon? Uh, so both Adjahelm and Lakembi have been approved by the FDA. Uh, the issue that we're currently dealing with is CMS, which is short for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, have put very strict guidelines on access. Um, and so, and this is the first time in history that this has ever happened. So this has never happened with any of the cancer medications or AIDS medications. And we know that whenever there's the first generation of a new group of medications, there will be side effects. And those side effects, you know, could have long-term effects. And so CMS has put really strict guidelines that in order to receive these two medications, these, new, these two new treatments, you have to be involved in a clinical trial. 
And what we're working on now is getting the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid to change their guidelines so that the choice is given to the person diagnosed. And I should say that these medications are for people in the very, very early stages of Alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment that have had a scan done that shows that they actually have the beta amyloid build up in their brain because that's what it focuses on. So these treatments are very for a very specific group of individuals, and we want to make sure that those folks have the say on if they want to try the treatment or not. Science Friday, which is a program we carry here at Radio Catskill, they had an extended segment on rethinking the future of dementia care. And in your role, I know that you oversee programs and services offered by the Hudson Valley chapter to meet the needs of the community when it comes to this type of care. And Alzheimer's, of course, is the leading cause of dementia. What do you think we're doing right in terms of dementia care? And and how can we rethink the future of it? I think what we're doing right in dementia care is that we're really focusing back on a client-centered approach, so training and educating professionals on looking at each individual as an individual, not as a disease. I think it's just also educating the healthcare professionals about Alzheimer's, and not only Alzheimer's, but other forms of dementia and how those other forms might uh, look different and how they might have to really rethink their approach depending on what form of dementia the individual has. And I think we're really improving in a lot of areas as far as technology and um, other, other avenues on how to provide really a better quality of life for people who have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia. And, of course, those heroes that are participating in Sub-Zero Heroes are sacrificing every day to care for those loved ones who struggle with dementia and Alzheimer's disease directly. What do you hear from them, well, of course, throughout the year, but specifically around this time at this event? Well, I think this is an opportunity for people who um, have a loved one who's been diagnosed to feel like they're somehow being a part of, you know, finding that next medication, that next treatment, or or uh, the funding also goes towards our care and support. So supporting our support groups or our socialization programs. And I think folks that, that jump um, definitely have that personal connection, and it gives them an opportunity to feel like they're being a part of really meeting what our vision is. And the Alzheimer's Association's vision is a world without Alzheimer's and all dementia. And so that's something that we really continue to focus on. Let's remind people the Sub-Zero Heroes event is happening next Saturday, February 25th. Uh, Folks can still register, and can you give us a few more details? Yes. So if you are interested in registering, you would go to subzeroheroes.com. Dot org, O-R-G. Um, you can either register yourself or we really encourage folks to get their friends together, fundraise together, have a team that jumps together. If you have a friend that does not want to jump but wants to be there and also fundraise, they can be what we call a sidekick. 
So our sidekicks are waiting for us when we come out of the water with our towel. They guide us up to our heated trailers um, where we can get changed into our warm clothes. We have the culinary there. They always supply us with three different kinds of wonderful soups, and we have a hot chocolate bar so people kind of hang out and socialize. Registration starts at 1030. The welcome is at 1145, and we start to jump right at noon, so right at 12 o'clock. And that frigid water they're jumping into is at Berrien Lake in Highland, New York. And Meg, I have to ask, since this was an idea of your husband's, are you a jumper or are you a sidekick? I've been a jumper. <laughs> I've been a jumper. I've had no say. I, I, what I will say is I've learned to keep my head above water, where my husband, and I should say my husband's nickname is the father of freeze. Um, he has to always, every year, be completely submerged. I do my jump and I get out, but I try to keep my head dry. <laughs> <laughs> is there is there a costume that you'd like to share, or is it a surprise? Uh, we change it up every year, whatever I can get my husband to wear. I actually bought us, um, like, Las Vegas showgirl purple headdresses. <laughs> <laughs> so we might incorporate them this year. We usually wear purple tutus, purple tights. What I will tell people is less is better. So just a bathing suit um, or shorts and a T-shirt. I learned the hard way that one year I wore a lot of clothing and it just weighs you down and it takes a lot more time to get that off. So less clothing like a bathing suit or shorts and T-shirt is better. Get out of that ice cold water quicker. Yes. We've been speaking to Meg Boyce. She's the Vice President of Programs and Services for the Alzheimer's Association Hudson Valley Chapter. Sub-Zero Heroes is happening Saturday, February 25th. You can find more information about the great work that they do at Alzheimer's Association Hudson Valley at alzhudsonvalley.org. Meg, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, good luck with the jump, with the plunge. Thank you so much, Tim, and thank you so much for having me. That's all for this edition of Radio Chat Skill. Uh, remember, we have several podcasts on our website, wjffradio.org, including a podcast from the Sullivan County Democrat, hosted by our own Patricia Robayo. Here's a preview. Residents Resistance. The Town of Bethel Planning Board held a continuation of the public hearing at the proposed purchase and renovation of the White Lake landmark, the White Lake Mansion House, on Monday night at the former Duggan School. A room full of residents brought forth questions, concerns, and criticism regarding the proposal. Attorney Jacob Billick, who was representing the applicant on the behalf of the Law Office of Billick, Logan Silver, LLP, returned to address some of the issues previously brought up at the first public hearing. The project was introduced before the planning board back in 2013. However, the project never took shape and was seemingly abandoned. Now a developer is seeking to begin the project again with a new application. And you can listen to our podcasts and our local shows on demand. Just go to WJFFradio.org. I'm Tim Bruno. Thanks for listening. Support comes from the Homestead School, Montessori Education, preschool through early college with campuses in Glens Bay and Hurleyville, building the intelligence, creativity, connection, and skills for an ecological future since 1978. Homesteadschool.com. From the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com, and from listener donations at wjffradio.org.
I'm Kathy Geary of Radio Catskills Now and Then. The Tiny Desk Contest is back. NPR Music is looking for the next great undiscovered musician. Could it be you? If you're an unsigned musician, enter the contest by sending a video of you playing an original song behind a desk. If you win, you'll play your very own Tiny Desk Concert. Go to WJFFRadio.org for all the official rules. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Radio Catskill. On air, online, on your smartphone, and on your smart speaker. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. Radio Catskill. WJFF.